Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now in bookstores, The Bowery Boys' Adventures in Old New York. A time-traveling journey into a past that lives simultaneously beside the modern city. We are enormously proud of our first book, telling the remarkable story of old New York. The port town, the revolutionary stronghold, the immigrant sanctuary, the Gilded Age city. The ghosts of old New York still linger along the small streets of downtown, in the marbled exteriors of aging castles, from the stone outcroppings of Manhattan's highest points to the secrets beneath its oldest parks. The Bowery Boys' Adventures in Old New York is your treasure map to an alternative metropolis, showing you a different side to places you know probably too well and destinations you never thought would be so interesting. You can get it now, like right now, online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble or at your local bookstore. Episode 213 of The Bowery Boys. The Bronx is building. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey, Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With the second part of our Bronx series, I guess you could call this the Empire Strikes Back of the trilogy here, uh, building (laughs) the Bronx, or the Bronx is building. Yeah, I think this is actually the building of the Empire. So, so I'm not really sure that that analogy works, although, nice try, may the Fordham be with you. <laughs> well, not only will Fordham be with me, but all sorts of different neighborhoods, which will now crop up in this show. This is going to be an exciting show, Greg. Yeah, we're going from taking an area of farmlands and forests and estates, and of course that big area that, of course, was called the Annex District, and by the end of this show, we will be talking about, officially, the Borough of the Bronx. So if you're just dropping in here uh, and you haven't heard our last episode, it's worth stating that this is part two in a three-part series that we're doing on the history of the Bronx. Our last episode was the first installment that takes today's borough all the way up until 1874, when half of it, the western half, votes to join New York City. Well, in this podcast, we'll tell the story of the Bronx as it develops for the services of New York City, how it expands because, of course, the population fleeing those overcrowded neighborhoods down south, and how it forms these new public spaces and institutions to provide a little respite for those crowds. So today we're focusing really on the late 1870s all the way up until the 1940s, post-World War II. 
a lot happens here. Many of the Bronx's most iconic sites and institutions were built and developed during this period. And thanks, Tom. If the first episode set the stage here, Mm -hmm. I would say this episode, we introduce some of the characters, at least some of the inanimate characters, such as the Grand Concourse, the mini parks of the Bronx, and of course, Yankee Stadium. Those are all major bold-faced names of the Bronx, and we'll be getting to their stories. And fortunately, we won't just be telling it alone. We're going to be joined by the official Bronx County historian himself, Lloyd Olton, who was kind enough to join us along the Grand Concourse just a couple days ago. He is the Jedi Master, to continue with the Star Wars analogy, the Jedi Master (laughs) of Bronx history. And best part, he loves a good pun. (laughs) He was out punning us left and right. And hopefully we'll squeeze a few of those puns in the show here. The ultimate. The the, the ultimate puns are coming your way. So join us as we witness the building of the Bronx. Okay, Greg. Well, I did say that we were going to start in about 1874, Mm -hmm. mid-1870s. By way of situating the listener, is it possible for you to sort of recap what we tackled in that first episode? Oh, of course. Previously on the Bowery Boys. Now, this area of the Bronx, which is north of Manhattan and the only borough attached to the U.S. mainland, Mm -hmm. it received its first European settlers in the late 1630s many of which met unfortunate ends, but left their names behind on the landscapes that we're about to talk about, you know, most notably Jonas Bronk himself. Now, the British called this area Westchester County and set up farm estates lorded over by wealthy New Yorkers that were authorized by the Crown. And some of those people we mentioned in the last episode were Frederick Phillips mm-hmm. and Mr. Pell, mm-hmm. whose name also pops up in a certain park. Very wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm. Big estates. Now, during the Revolutionary War, the Bronx saw a couple minor skirmishes in 1776. So you had these rich families with these vast estates, but there were also some notable small villages. Right, and these villages in Westchester County were bolstered in the early 1840s by the development of the New York and Harlem Railroad, who built their first station here in Fordham. But due to the success of this and the success of the railroad, other little villages formed along the route. Right, and wherever they were building a station, there'd be another little cluster that would turn into a little village. Right, and as a result, because of this, a handful of these villages, namely Kingsbridge, Mott Haven, Morsenia, and West Farms, well, the residents of those places, they desired to have some of the benefits of mm-hmm. the city down south, of course, because many of them commuted. This was a commuter town, a suburb. Services and utilities, and I guess transportation options. Yeah, I mean, long story short, they want to have a little bit of New York City up here in Westchester County. And of course, the landowners wanted it too, because that just meant an enormous spike in their land values if suddenly they had city property. Right. So then naturally, this culminates in these particular areas becoming annexed into New York City in 1874 and being called the Annexed District. And that's where we left our last episode. Now, I want to go back to that moment, Tom, because the way that we presented it in the last show, very naturally, 
was from the point of view of the people who lived in the Bronx, Mm -hmm. who lived in those little villages, and the ones who would benefit the most from becoming an annexed part of the big city. So that's what's in it for the people living in the Bronx. But what's in it for the New Yorkers down in Manhattan? Well, this was the most natural way for them to expand the city northward. In the 1870s, New York is getting so crowded Mm -hmm. in those neighborhoods that are confined by this point just below 23rd Street. Now, in more than one place, I read that this annexation of 1874 was New York's first imperial expansion. I like imagining it in this sort of like grandiose ways here. Right, like a great empire. And these opportunities would only open up even more with the first elevated trains that would come into the Bronx here in 1886, driving more development. In more ways than one, the Bronx, which had been so kind of distant and far away and very suburban, was slowly becoming a little bit like New York in good ways and bad. And the Bronx had geography, obviously, on its side as well, because if you look at New York at that time, Manhattan... All the development was climbing north up the island, and it just had to hop across the Harlem River and across Spite and Dival, and and there you were. Those waterways did not present the same kind of barrier that one faced, say, hopping over to Queens or Brooklyn, let alone Staten Island. And keeping that in mind, you'll better understand the people behind New York's motivation for doing this. For the man behind the movement here was Andrew Green and his Central Park Commission. Isn't it? It's yes. kind of there's, it's a disconnect at first. You're like, wait. A parks commission? Why are they Why would a parks commission be involved in the expansion into the Bronx? Right. Well, we have a whole show on the consolidation of New York of 1898, which we'll talk about later in this show. But Andrew Green um, was one of the main motivators of that consolidation. But he was thinking about growing New York City for many decades before. It was much of his civic planning that far extended just the mayor Central Park and his plans in the 60s and 70s here that would transform these rural areas, these suburban areas, and would help cityfy them. He had been planning this early. As early as 1868, he said, quote, The lower part of the county of Westchester lies adjacent to the city of New York and is separated from it by a river of a width easily bridged or tunneled. It is so intimately connected with and dependent upon the city of New York that unity of plan for improvements on both sides of the river is essential, unquote. Mm-hmm. So this was like a little pea in his brain that, of course, would in just a few years develop into the first proper annex. Right. And mentioning that the engineering feat of traversing that body of water would be relatively easy. Yeah. So let me get this straight. Then once this area voted to join the city in 1874, Mm -hmm. it fell under the jurisdiction of the Parks Department that was being led appropriately by Green. (laughs) A green project. There's a lot of green area. (laughs) And keep in mind, this is pretty much most of the Bronx today west of the Bronx River. So a sizable area of the modern Bronx today. So the Parks Department was in charge of laying out the streets and yeah. and planning things other than just parks. It's pretty extraordinary the, so the scope that they were given by the city. Was this because it was rural land and they just kind of thought of it as parkland? And also some of the most important urban planners happened to work for the parks department and mm-hmm. worked specifically on Central Park. So it, it wasn't a real leap 
administratively to get these people involved with changing the whole place. But still, the Parks Department was laying out streets. Being the Parks Department, and this is what's very important, they turn to the master of massive city planning here to help do this. And that is Frederick Law Olmsted, Mm -hmm. the architect of Central Park with Calvert Vox, but also of Prospect Park. And then this is where it really ties in to what's happening in the Bronx. They were also responsible with the development of parkways in Brooklyn, which linked parks together. So Ocean Parkway and Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn were Olmsted and Vox projects. Right. So these were beautiful tree-lined avenues where you could take your carriage out Mm -hmm. to get from point A to point B or just for a nice promenade around town. Yeah. So it's like a park extension. So they're kind of doing that same thing here in the Bronx. Fortunately, though, Olmsted appreciated what the Bronx had to offer, and he wanted to design true suburbs here. He didn't want to do exactly what was being done down in Brooklyn. So he didn't feel like a grid plan was appropriate for the Bronx with all these valleys and hills and ridges. He wanted it to kind of meander and feel distinctly less dense than New York, which was getting a lot of criticism. We love our grid plan today, but it was receiving a lot of criticism. We love the convenience of of the grid plan, but sometimes it can be, you know, boring and congested. Oh, yeah, certainly. Now, even today, a couple neighborhoods in the Bronx adhere to this original Olmsted vision. Mm-hmm. Now, remember Wave Hill from the last episode sure. with all those different spacious mountains along the Hudson? Well, this is one of the few places where it would be chopped up and laid out in a way that would still keep the kind of the character of the land. This would eventually, in the early 20th century, develop into the neighborhood called Riverdale. And Riverdale is still a neighborhood that has these winding roads that feel like country lanes. Mostly, though, of the neighborhoods here in the 1880s years, they were laying things out. The developers actually frowned upon this meandering idea of Olmsted. Olmsted was even let go from the project in 1878. Why did they frown upon it? I take it there's less money in it for them? Oh, yeah. It was so much easier to sell lots that were, of course, on these square blocks because you could divvy them up more easily and just sell more of it. So look at a map today of the Bronx. Unlike Manhattan, which is super organized almost to a fault, Mm -hmm. the Bronx almost has no overarching rhyme or reason. There are small developed grids that are interlocked today by big thoroughfares, but there's little uniformity. And those small grids were laid out by separate developers. But there are grids, obviously. And in fact, the the most southern portion of Morrisania, the, the southern section that pushed for annexation in the first place, adopted a street grid to make them even more attractive to the city. Right. But today they're confined to neighborhoods or perhaps two neighborhoods next to each other will be on a grid plan. But it's not, not uniform. It's not uniform at all. Now, so that was the first big move, that the city attempted to turn it into a little bit more of a New York up here. The second one, which would be more successful, involves the development of parks. Which would seem easier for the parks department <laughs> to develop and to, to oversee. Uh, that they would have a little more oversight and they would understand what they were doing here. It's and true. They are all over the Bronx today. Well, it's 25% of the area. Almost 25% is parkland. Is that because the city government gave jurisdiction to the parks department? That they, they sort of classified so much territory as parkland? Well, partially. But it also involved the kind of the uprising of certain citizens. And, I mean, this is also an area 
era of great political corruption and confusion. So there's probably a lot of this going on in the background. But there's one man that they call the father of Bronx Parks, who is mostly responsible for this. His name is John Mullaly. In the early 1880s, he formed a group called the New York Park Association. And it's this group and him individually who are seen as being responsible for the development of these parks. He was a newspaper reporter, a civic activist. He sounds like a great guy. And, you know, there's a park in the Bronx named after him. And I I don't want to tarnish his reputation by reading of some of the things he did before. But I should mention that in 1863, during the Civil War draft riots, he was ardently anti-war anti-union and of course then was thus pro-draft riots and fueled some of this violence with some of his newspaper editorials. He was also a big Tammany Hall man, so you can mm-hmm. imagine that, you know, he had his hands in a few parks and <laughs> a parks or purse parks, purse strings, park parks, strings, <laughs> pockets. But don't let that sell your trip next time you're in Van Cortland Park here. Because he worked on Van Cortland Park? Yeah, so that's one of the parks he's responsible for. He saw the preservation of lush green space up here in Westchester County as a savior of New York's rising populations. He said, quote, If we make a park out of this land, it will be the favorite suburban resort of the mass of the population, the toilers of the city. It will be their Newport Mm-hmm. So his arguments were quite convincing to people, and the city was only getting more crowded by the 1880s here. Westchester County was more than willing to provide solace for these new crowds. Because we're still, even though it's the Annex District, it's Westchester County. Yes, it's still Westchester County. Back to that confusing scenario. Well, there, I mean, part of it is New York, but the uh, many other parts are still Westchester County. In 1884, with the New Parks Act, this authorized the city to set aside money to buy land. And so thus, between 1888 and 1890, they did indeed purchase large parcels of land to make five parks. Okay. okay. Remember the Van Cortland family? Remember right. that the state during the Revolutionary War and the, the burial vault with the city records, all Absolutely. of that? All of that land, over 1,000 acres, would become Van Cortland Park. Over on the east side, remember the Bartow Pell Mansion? Yeah, that the nice Pell little family. place? Sure. Right. Well, all of that, the 2,700 acres eventually, which would become the largest park in New York, Pelham Bay Park. Mm-hmm. There would also be other parks like Claremont Park, St. Mary's Park, which would be on the old Morris family estate. But there's one park I want to focus on really quickly before we move on, and that's Bronx Park, which is at 718 acres. Bronx Park. Now, could you place that on a map for us? Well, you know where the Bronx River is? It's kind of what's dividing everything here on the east and west. The park itself enfolds itself around the Bronx River. In this particular area of the Bronx River, it, it was owned by the Laurelard family. Weren't they tobacconists? <laughs> tobacconists indeed, Tom. Yes. Um, since the Revolutionary War, the Laurelard name, Pierre Laurelard, opened a manufacturing plant in Manhattan where he sold tobacco stuffed into dried animal bladders. Quote, dried and tanned like parchment. They stuffed animal bladders? Well, no, but before they had cigarette cases. That's where they actually oh, kept you would the cap. Keep, yeah. keep the cigarettes in a bladder. And to keep it moist? Ugh. <laughs> I don't have the stomach for this, Greg. <laughs> well, needless to say, by the 1840s, the Lorillards had mm-hmm. moved up to the Bronx River and they had a snuff mill that was on the river. So New York buys the land 
creates Bronx Park with it, but does something very unique. And that involves two people by the name of Nathaniel Lord Britton and his wife, Elizabeth Gertrude Britton. Their names strike me as distinctly British. But they're actually, they are Britons? No, they're from Staten Island. <laughs> well. So he was a Columbia professor. And with his wife, they shared a love of botany. So they joined the Tory Botany Society and decided that why doesn't New York have a great botanic garden in the same way that London has? So long story short, they were given land here at Bronx Park to create in 1891 the New York Botanical Garden. They were given this land by the city? Yes, to develop uh, this beautiful garden there, which is still there today. And... To tie it back to the Lorillards, this snuff mill is still there. It's within the confines of the current botanical garden, and you but can still visit it. the pig bladders are the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> Which would open in 1899, right next to the botanical garden. Would that also be land that was provided by the city? Right. Yes, correct. And they would call this, just some nice symmetry, the original name, or one of the original names, was the Bronx Zoological Garden. So, you know, you have flora and fauna here, and right here in the middle of the Bronx. All right, well, this all sounds very logical, but hold right. on. You mentioned Pelham Bay Park. Mm-hmm. But certainly, that's not in this annex district. That's no. the, Pel- the Pelham Bay Park is way off on the eastern end, which was still outside this annex territory in part of Westchester County. Yeah, and even part of the Bronx Park is on the other side of the Bronx, of the River, Bronx River and technically not in the annex district. Well, remember in our last show... In the East Bronx, today's East Bronx, you have these original villages, right? You had Mm -hmm. Westchester, you had Eastchester, you had Pelham, not to mention Old City Island dangling out over there, right? Right. Well, in 1895, they are then annexed to become part of New York. The entire eastern section, Pelham and Eastchester are actually chopped in half. They kind of divide these towns so that the southern portions then become part of the Bronx. The northern portions then become independent townships themselves. In Westchester County. In Westchester County. And that, Tom, is why there are a village of Pelham and a town of Eastchester. But also an Eastchester neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, they once were... They once Greg's were... <laughs> so excited, he just hit his pop guard. They, they once were one, and right. now are apart. So that takes us to 1895, but what's amazing is that, as many people know, 1898 saw the consolidation of New York, in which Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island joined Manhattan to become this... Yeah five borough Mm -hmm. city but the Bronx at this point was part of New York City yeah so a little confusing because in in 1895 Mm -hmm. with this annexation of the East Bronx essentially almost all Mm -hmm. of today's Bronx is made a part of New York but New York City New York City in the decades before the Civil War slavery's grip on America tightened But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad 
a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So what happened with the 1898 consolidation was that Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island actually joined New York City, but today's Bronx was already in New York City. It was already part of New York, yeah. Right. The others were largely defined by the counties they were in, and those would become their boroughs. But today's borough of the Bronx, however, was now a part of New York County. It left Westchester County and became New York County, creating all kinds of confusion. (laughs) And it wouldn't have its own county, Bronx County, until 1914. So in an alternate universe, it still could have been today New York County. How did Bronx County come to be here in 1914? Well, it wasn't exactly convenient for the people living up in the Bronx when they had to go to a county office or something. They had to go all the way down to lower Manhattan. Not really fair for them. So, So they got their own county, Bronx County, in 1914. And this new borough in 1898 was actually named after the river, the Bronx River. So the official name of the borough is the Borough of the Bronx, with a sort of like parenthetical (laughs) river Mm -hmm. there. It's like, you know, like we said in the last show, you say the Bronx because you're talking about the river, like the Mississippi. So the borough became the Borough of the Bronx. Or just the Bronx. (laughs) The Bronx, excuse me. But looking at this period from, say, 1895, from, you know, the vote to join New York until the end of the 19-teens, it's a period of extraordinary growth in the Bronx. And probably the biggest vehicle of change in the borough's history would occur in 1904 with the opening of the first New York subway station in the borough. That would make it truly a breeze for New Yorkers to live up here and to get to work in Manhattan. And in a few minutes here, we'll head up to the Bronx to speak to Lloyd Olden, the official Bronx borough historian, outside of that first station that opened in 1904. But first, let's just quickly discuss some of the other things that happened up Mm -hmm. here of note in the same period, because it's a period where, because of these transit options, suddenly there were just masses of people that were able to move up here and find better housing. So you have a you have mass transit coming into this district, and you have many of these estates that had been up here that we talked about in the first show, selling off their property to developers, and then developers were building almost exclusively apartment buildings. There had been single-family homes up here. And, there, and in the southern sections, there had been tenements, right. spe- specifically. And now people could move to new, more modern apartment buildings up in the Bronx that were much better than what people could get back down 
down in the tenements in the Lower East Side and Hell's Kitchen and other parts of Manhattan. Well, in many cities in the United States today, like these new developments happen on the edge of town that Mm -hmm. are kind of the hot places to live. And it's kind of how this is happening right here in the Bronx. And one very notable place that this would be happening would be along the Grand Concourse, which started construction in 1894, but wouldn't open until 1909. But Greg, remember the Jerome racetrack that we talked about in the last show? Oh, right. It's where all the wealthy people went uh, to get their sort of horse racing game on. That's right. It was started by Leonard Jerome and August Belmont and opened in 1886. Well, just over 20 years after it was opened, it was actually condemned in order to rip the whole thing down and make it part of the new Croton Aqueduct reservoir system. This was taking up a whole lot of space and the Bronx was growing. And the Bronx, I assume, would then be receiving some of this water. It would certainly benefit from it. And the reservoir wouldn't take up the entire space that had been occupied by the racetrack. There would be room left over for the construction of several schools and colleges, including the highly esteemed Bronx High School of Science, Hunter College in the Bronx, which is now Lehman College, and DeWitt Clinton High School, among other academic institutions. Well, not to mention, Tom, one of the biggest campuses up here in the Bronx, which was the extension of New York University. Their uptown campus, which opened in 1894, and is today the Bronx Community College, but there's a lot of fantastic architecture still there from this period in the 1890s by some great architects. Not to mention another attraction that was a true tourist attraction back in its day, the Hall of Fame of Great Americans, which opened in 1900, which is literally a lineup (laughs) of the great men and women who have contributed to the cultural and academic and political and business and scientific life of the country. I mean, Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite places in New York City. I love it. We've been there together, romping around. I mean, it's, it's fortunate that they don't update it anymore. You could have a Steve Jobs and a Beyonce. You could have a Beyonce bust. I'm sure it's crossed their mind, and I think that they do have great Americans still in waiting to oh, join okay. the group. It, it was renovated in 2001, and it's certainly worth a visit today. So all of this is happening. These academic institutions are opening. The reservoir is being built. A grand concourse is being built. A subway is opening. And hundreds of thousands of people living in cramped quarters downtown in Manhattan are looking up at the Bronx thinking, wow, maybe that's where we can move. And one of the places that they would look, if they had enough money, was along this grand boulevard that was under construction. Well, since we're on the subject of the Grand Concourse here, why don't we share a little bit of our interview that we did with Lloyd back on Sunday on the Grand Concourse and about the Grand Concourse. Right. It was right along this stretch, actually, uh, next to the post office at 149th Street and the Grand Concourse, where Greg and I met up with Lloyd Olton to discuss the opening of the subway and the construction of the Grand Concourse. So we have the great pleasure of joining along the Grand Concourse, the Bronx's official historian, a Bronx County official historian. Well, let's see, it's, it's actually the Bronx Borough historian by state law. <laughs> so we'll stick to state Ooh, law. Fancy. L- Lloyd Olton is with us. So nice to have you. Very nice. Well, glad, glad to be here. So you recommended that we join you at 149th and the Grand Concourse because in this part of the story, we're talking about the development of the subway, the push of the subway into the into the Bronx. And I understand that we're standing across the street from the first station of the IRT. That's right. It's the uh, in 1904, 
The Interborough Rapid Transit Company, or IRT, uh, built the first station in the Bronx, which was uh, then called Mott Avenue. Uh, the this section of the Grand Concourse south of 161st Street was a much narrower street, and it's called Mott Avenue. The, the line uh, did not connect with Manhattan originally, because the, the line was being built from Manhattan on the Manhattan side, and then on the Bronx side as well, and then went up to uh, 3rd Avenue and 149. 9th Street, and that was the other stop. And uh, when the service was originated in the Bronx, all it did was go back and forth between those two stations. Hmm. And uh, until until the tunnel was finally dug to connect it with Manhattan, uh, which was a short time later, 1905. And and so of course New York subway opened in 1904, same year. Uh, yeah, well of course uh, the, you have to remember the Bronx was part of New York City. Excuse me, Manhattan <laughs> subway opened <laughs> okay. in 1904. Right, yeah, the first system. Right, right. and the uh, uh, the subway was extended as an elevated line further north. And the reason for that is the businessmen and the political leaders were demanding a rapid increase in rapid transit system. And the way to get it done very, very quickly was to make it an elevated line rather than the subway line. It took much longer. I understand from your book, you mentioned that one of the reasons that they would build an elevated line was because they didn't necessarily think the development around it would mind. Uh, well, there wasn't any development in, in many cases. Uh, north of 149th Street and east of 3rd Avenue was largely farms and scattered suburban villages. So they wouldn't get the racket that uh, would come from it. However, what did happen was that the creation of the subways spurred the building of more and more uh, apartment houses. And as soon as developers discovered what route the subway would take, they immediately uh, purchased all the property they could and built apartment houses ahead of the coming of the subway. Sounds like there might have been some insider information being passed. <laughs> yeah, they read the newspaper. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> so, so what were those lines? And again, if, if this was the first at 149th and today's yeah. Grand Concourse. Yeah, that, yeah, that, was the, that came in uh, very, very early and was extended originally up to uh, the Bronx Zoo. Huh. Then uh, the, uh, the city decided that the very, very crowded areas in Manhattan, had to be, the population there had to be dispersed among the other boroughs. And so they decided very wisely to have all of the subsequent subways built at the same time. Because if they hadn't built one by one, what would happen is that the crowded area would shift from one place to another. This way it would actually be dispersed. And so in the period just before and just after World War One. All of the IRT lines uh, were built in the Bronx. And uh, what happened was that in 1910, the line uh, that came up Broadway was extended into the Bronx and opened up for service then. In 1917, uh, the line that came up Lexington Avenue and Jerome Avenue in the Bronx was opened up then. The line that was the original line was extended from its original stop up to White Plains Road, up to the city line, and that opened up just about the same time. And then in 1920, uh, what is what was known as the Pelham Bay Line, now the number six train of the uh, Lexington Avenue local, was opened up. And so uh, it, it worked. And what happened was that the subways built the Bronx. It's kind of incredible to think about how quickly they were building these things. I mean, when you think today, how long it takes them to build, say, a you know five-block spans or 
heaven forbid what's happening on the east side with the Second Avenue line. How were they doing it all so quickly? One way was the uh, the, the method of building of a subway instead of go- going deep underground, uh, which was uh, uh, very very expensive and very. Uh, this way was cut and covered, so they went uh, you know only one level down and uh, by cutting the thing up and then they they covered it. So it was much faster. And also, again, extending the lines further up as elevated lines, that was a heck of a lot faster. And uh, cheaper, I imagine. And much cheaper. And, of course, uh, they, they, they looked at the dollars in those days. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're on the Grand Concourse. The, the subway here opened in 1904, but the concourse opened as far as a, a street can open in 1909, yeah, correct? Now, now you, have, you have to remember that the lower part of the Grand Concourse, south of 161st Street, was already an existing street called Mott Avenue. When uh, the concourse was first projected, it was projected by a fellow who was an immigrant from Alsace-Lorraine, also a civil engineer, by the name of Louis A. Ries, R-I-S-S-E. According to his account, uh, he went hunting one day uh, in an area where Cretona Park is. They did a lot, a lot of hunting in those days and before it was a park. And he looked westward and he saw this ridge and he said, that's a perfect place for a highway. And remember, there's nothing there. It's, you know, it's all uh, you know, farmland and edges of uh, small suburban villages. It took a deuce of a time to, for him to try to convince people that this magnificent wide boulevard would be a uh, thing to do, but he finally did it. Did the area need a new highway or a new boulevard? Not at that time. However, uh, there is a story that is told about Henry Mitchell McCracken, who was the uh, chancellor of New York University, who was looking for a site to put a new campus of NYU since he found that... Um, the Washington Square area was getting overly crowded and the uh, and, and industrial, and he wanted a campus where people would be like just a normal place. And he, he was looking at the Bronx, and according to the story of his son, Henry Noble McCracken, they saw the Grand Concourse being built and 182 feet wide with nothing around. And the son said, you know, why? He says, well, there's nothing here now, but in the future... There'll be many more people living here, and you will need a street this wide. And he said, these people see with the eye of the future. So in other words, they were planning for the future. Now, at that time, the Grand Concourse was, uh, in Reese's idea, was to connect Central Park through a similar parkway up the east side of Manhattan, across the McCombs Dam Bridge, across the Harlem River, up 161st Street to connect with the Grand Concourse, which started there. The Grand Concourse would then go northward to Marshalloo Parkway, where a person could turn right to go to Bronx Park or left to go to uh, Van Cortlandt Park. And I'm sorry, which, we're in the 1880s here? Which decade well, are we in? Well, in the 1880s, was, uh, was, uh, Reese had the idea for it. Uh, in the 1890s, he, uh, he designed it because he got the go-ahead. Uh, in the early 1900s, it started being built, and finally in 1909, it opened only north from the 161st Street. When you mentioned Eye of the Future, what I actually, what I appreciate about our early Bronx developers here is not just that they were anticipating people, yeah. but they were anticipating different forms of transportation because right. these original Grand Concourse plans were for carriages and horses. That's right. The, uh, the center part of the Grand Concourse was uh, dirt. You could go out with your, uh, your own sulky and uh, trot <laughs> your horse with uh, other people who had their own sulkies and trot their horses. 
and also in 1933, the IND, the Independence Subway, was built uh, directly by the city to be in competition with the IRT and uh, consequently came underneath the Harlem River and then up to the Grand Concourse and opened up in 1933. And that kicked off uh, another era of development in the Grand Concourse. Uh, at that time in the 1930s, the uh, architectural style, uh, the favorite architectural style was Art Deco. And you have building after building after building in the Art Deco style that is, uh, was erected on the Grand Concourse. And as a result today, the Grand Concourse has the largest collection of Art Deco residences in the world. Mm. But construction during the Depression. It was during the Depression and was done by private developers, not by government. Hmm. Because the Grand Concourse attracted fairly wealthy people. Most of them were Jewish, but they also had some Irish and some Italians who lived on the Grand Concourse. It was a symbol of economic and social success. It was the Bronx's equivalent to uh, Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue in Manhattan. So you always uh, said, you know, I, I live on the Grand Concourse, and you said it proudly. Uh, you know. I actually want to hear about, like, where you grew up as a kid. And yeah. well, well, first of all, I, I, I grew up on the uh, northeast corner of 165th Street and uh, Walton Avenue, one block to the west of the Grand Concourse. My earliest memory, uh, I can actually date it, and you, when I tell you what the memory is, you'll know why. It occurred on October 28th, 1940, a little after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> okay. Uh, suddenly, my mother grabs me, uh, goes up the, uh, to the Grand Concourse, and stays on the pedestrian mall that separates the, uh, the roadways. Across the, on the other, uh, opposite pedestrian mall, there was a woman wearing a print dress, a uh, black page boy haircut. Suddenly, she leans forward and starts applauding like a seal as she looks to her left, my right. I look in the direction she is, because this seems strange to me, and there is a, coming up the middle of the Grand Concourse, there is an open-topped uh, uh, car. Seated on the back seat of the car is Franklin Roosevelt. Wow. Wow. <laughs> And I turned to my mother, who's uh, like 150 feet tall, uh, who's holding my hand, and I turned to her and I said, President Roosevelt, here? And that's all I remember, but that's my earliest memory. Wow. <laughs> that, that's a humdinger of a memory, I have right, to say. Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much for taking time today to talk okay, to us. Okay, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Can you recall off the top of your head how many books you've authored? I've authored 13. All on the Bronx? Not all, not all on the Bronx. Some of them are actually written on paper. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, if I've, I if I've written them all on the Bronx, I'd be the big, biggest graffiti artist in the borough. <laughs> Thanks so much for <laughs> that. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. The 1920s, Tom. Mm. Uh, what do you think about with New York City in the 1920s? Mm. I think about good times. <laughs> I think about prohibition speakeasies. Right. Jazz but, age. And that's, you know, those are the the delicious details of the 1920s, but this was really the golden decade all over the city, in particular the outer boroughs. Uh, here in the Bronx, for instance, the population in 1920 was 732,000 people. By 1930, it would be well over 1.2 million people. 
That's a huge increase. Yeah. And I take it because of the transit that was in place? Yeah, the subway. Now, of course, you had even automobiles. Not great roads, but you did have that as well, helping people move into this area. For instance, uh, um, Riverdale, which I had mentioned in the first section, was already being divvied up. These mini estates Mm -hmm. were turned into residential enclaves. Basically, these large mansions divided up the land in front of them. So they were smaller houses, but the big one would still be there. Well, so that's the high-end housing. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, weren't most people living in rental apartments elsewhere in the borough? Yeah, I mean, in particular, on the Grand Concourse here, Now, of course, the people moving in, they were arriving in waves. And soon these sort of the old Bronx of all these old farm spaces, these relaxed spaces, were entirely wiped away almost by the 1920s by all of this development. Many of the the new immigrants, the first and second generation immigrants that moved to the South Bronx and these Mm -hmm. other neighborhoods were drawn to industries that formed along the water's edge of the South Bronx, Mm -hmm. Mott Haven and Port Morris. This number astounds me. By 1927, in the Bronx alone, 2,700 plants of all shapes and sizes, manufacturing places, employing over 100,000 people from all over who came to this area. Tom, let me focus on one particular industry that's down here. There's all sorts of industries, but the one I think that you'll find most intriguing is that the Bronx, believe it or not, became the American center of piano making, piano production. So all along the waterfront here, imagine all the sweet music. And these were all mostly German companies that had many German workers, Uh and they were all in direct competition with perhaps one of the most well-known German-born manufacturers of pianos, Steinway, who by this point was already making pianos over in Queens. Right. And this is in the 1920s? Like, during the radio age? Yeah, it seems a little weird, right? Now, we've talked in previous shows about how important the piano was in the late 19th century. Right. Um, And this was truly the heyday in the 1920s, because by the 1930s, you had the popularity of radio changing the tastes of music and how people consumed music. And you also had the Great Depression. But all of this would, of course, close these piano factories along the waterfront very slowly, which would, of course, have a negative impact on those nearby neighborhoods. Well, sticking to the 1920s really quickly, I want to talk about two buildings that were constructed during this period that I think are the most important to the future of the Bronx. Okay. The reputation of the Bronx. Two buildings. Yes. One of them you can probably guess. I'm thinking Babe Ruth played there. (laughs) Yes. So if you're on the Grand Concourse at 161st Street, um, just go down the hill a little bit on the west side. And on April 18th, 1923, that would have indeed been the opening day at Yankee Stadium. This was the home of the Yankees, the baseball team. But they moved up from Manhattan, right? Yeah, they had they had originally played at the Polo Grounds, which was actually more the home of the New York Giants. But we'll talk about that in a second. But they finally got their own home here in 1923. A new state-of-the-art stadium, $2.5 million. It could hold 60,000 people, making it easily one of the biggest venues in the United States in the 1920s. This brought true national attention to the Bronx. For many, the Bronx and the Yankees are permanently connected. It's actually part of their nickname, the Bronx Bombers. 
But hold on. You mentioned something about the New York Giants. The Giants. The yes. Giants, a the baseball. Baseball. Giants. Now, we know them today as a football team, but back in the day, they were indeed a baseball team as well. In the 1920s, New York had three baseball teams, and each one was associated with a borough. The Yankees were the Bronx, the Giants were Manhattan, and the Dodgers were Brooklyn. Yeah, but only the Yankees had Babe Ruth. Yes. I mean, Yankee Stadium was called the house that Ruth built because he was at the top of his game. In fact, on that first day, on the opening day in 1923, he hit a home run. Afterwards, he was besieged by almost a thousand children. He was seen as a rock star. He was seen as a god. And here he was in the Bronx. Could you imagine being a kid living on the Grand Concourse that close mm. to one of America's biggest sports celebrities playing there all the time. I mean, it was an extraordinary scene, and it was right there off the Grand Concourse. So yes, an absolutely iconic structure, but you mentioned two buildings. What is the second? Right, now this one isn't as well known, but in many ways, it's actually more important for New York City overall, which I'm sure Yankee fans will scream at me for. But in 1920... Get ready for mail. <laughs> but in 1927, opened the Amalgamated Cooperative Houses, and it's a little bit south of Van Cortland Park. And this was the first limited equity housing cooperative. Essentially, it's co-ops for the middle class. But what this opens the floodgates for is this idea of affordable housing. I mean, Tom, you turn on the radio every single day, and when you're listening to news about New York City in 2016, mm -hmm. affordable housing is always coming up in conversation. Absolutely. And, and that conversation is both about rentals that need to be more affordable and also purchasing an apartment or a home affordably, which seems Nearly impossible in New York City. But you're talking about cooperatives. So Yes, a limited equity cooperative, which essentially... Not rentals. Not rentals. You bought into the amalgamated cooperative house, and you owned it. But when you sold it, you didn't sell it for like a huge profit, because the whole point was that all of these were affordable places to buy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Grand Concourse had a bunch of rentals, but this was about people who wanted to own their own place, but, you know, didn't have, like, lavish means to do so. And, and where did it open? It was overlooking Van Cortlandt Park. It's to the south of Van Cortlandt Park. Okay. And believe it or not, many of the people who moved here were actually from some of these old Bronx neighborhoods, like Morrisania and Mott Haven. So this kind of cooperative housing would go on to inspire dozens, hundreds of buildings in the New York City area over the next few decades. So what's interesting about the 1930s is that it's obviously the Depression. And so manufacturing has slowed down throughout the city. The economy is taking a big hit. And the Bronx is taking, really, its first hit in several decades since that first subway opened in 1904. However, one industry that didn't really slow down was the construction industry because all of these new Art Deco apartment buildings were being built along the Grand Concourse, but also thousands of other apartment buildings throughout all of the different neighborhoods in the Bronx. And the borough also uh, received federal funds to tackle big construction projects as well under the WPA and other Depression-era programs. For example, the Grand Post Office, which opened in 1937 along the Grand Concourse, 
And what about the courthouse? It's just a little bit a little bit north of there. Right at 161st Street and the Grand Concourse, the Bronx County Courthouse or the Bronx Supreme Court opened in 1934. It is actually the the county courthouse and uh, the borough city hall. It houses the municipal offices, or at least it does now. There used to be a gorgeous old Beaux-Arts thing that was designed by George Post Mm. that opened in 1897 that was referred to as the Old Bronx Borough Hall, and it was placed at a high point in Cortona Park at about East Tremont Avenue and 3rd Avenue. And it unfortunately would succumb to a major fire in 1968, and only Mm. its front staircase survives today. Interesting. We cannot possibly talk about the Bronx without talking about one of our other favorite people who we haven't mentioned in a while. Well, if it's the 1930s, I'm assuming a parks commissioner. It's the 1930s, and we're taking broad strokes here (laughs) as we're talking about the history of an entire borough, an entire borough that needed things like bridges and parkways and roads, and it would get them in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. Thanks to Robert Moses. The great master builder himself, Now, Moses will be the focus of a big chunk of our next episode, which will deal with the Bronx from post-war to today. But already in the 1930s and up until World War II, he he was making a big impression in the borough because he became the Parks Commissioner of New York City in 1934. And he started very aggressively building parks throughout the city, which we talked about before, and swimming pools, using federal funds and employing many people. Well, technically, he was in charge of more than 25% of the Bronx, since it's all parkland here, right? Imagine how thrilled he was (laughs) about that. And one of his biggest parks that he, he developed was actually a beach, Orchard Beach which he developed in 1936 in Pelham Bay Park. And it's a gorgeous, long beach uh, surrounded by forests and and very near to Anne Hutchinson's split rock Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the bridge heading off to City Island. What also surrounds it is a gigantic parking lot. (laughs) That's true. It's a very Robert Moses-esque construction because there's these large, beautiful bathhouses and Mm -hmm. all the the, architecture. Right, the dramatic over-the-top pavilion, Mm -hmm. which when it opened, it had a 500-seat restaurant. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. Well, and then, of course, this large, large parking lot because they encourage people with automobiles. Yes, Moses had even bigger ambitions than this beach. Of course, he loved recreation and was sporty man himself, but he also loved to be driven about because he didn't drive, famously. (laughs) He was driven in his limousine. But he had, he had bigger ambitions, including a number of bridges that would touch the Bronx, including most famously the Triborough Bridge, which opened in 1936, which is a massive structure. In fact, three bridges, not just one, which connects Queens and Manhattan and the Bronx. Today, more than 160,000 people a day use the Triborough Bridge, and this was a was a cash machine for the Triborough Bridge Authority because the tolls that were collected by all of these thousands of automobiles every single day really fueled the next projects that came along that he chose to tackle. Robert Moses was a wizard with money. He was able to use the Triborough Bridge to fund other projects throughout the city, throughout the five boroughs, and of course using federal money to do that. Right. Later, he would also know how to hook into the inter 
interstate highway mm-hmm. system and get the federal government to pay for these for these construction projects as well. But quickly, he would also open the Henry Hudson Bridge in 1936, same year as the Triborough Bridge, which connected the Inwood neighborhood of Upper Manhattan to the Spite and Dival neighborhood of the Western Bronx. And it's a gorgeous bridge. It's one I of my favorites. I know. And, and the Bronx Whitestone Bridge in, in 1939, which connects the Bronx and Queens. So he's building bridges in the Bronx. He's also building parkways. You mentioned parkways before, including the Pelham Parkway, which opened in 1937. But he had something even bigger than breathtaking parkways, Greg. He, he knew that the Bronx had a problem. As, as far back as 1929, the city's own traffic studies showed that there needed to be some sort of faster route developed across the middle of the Bronx. And in 1936, there was a study that called for connecting the George Washington Bridge with the Whitestone Bridge, which he had built, and to roads that headed up into New England. And that would have to go straight across the Bronx from east to west. The war would stop much of this talk. Mm-hmm. But in 1945, Moses took up the issue again, and he called for something dramatic and incredibly ambitious a six-lane highway that would be plowed straight through the center of the Bronx. It would be an amazing feat to pull off because imagine the topography. Mm-hmm. Imagine as well the thousands of, of residences and stores and roads and subways and elevated rail lines and utilities that were already there. There was already a city that existed there and some of that would have to be wiped away. That would, of course turn out to be the Cross Bronx Expressway. And add to this, add to this period, 1945 and the end of World War II, soldiers coming back from the war, now with the GI Bill that made it easier for them to secure mortgages and to go off home shopping on their own, to purchase homes, not to rent them. Suddenly this promise of the American dream of having, you know, a little house with a backyard and a washer and a dryer and a place to park your car, Mm -hmm. it seemed irresistible to so many. And that's where we'll leave it in this episode. A true cliffhanger. Just like the end of Empire Strikes Back, but a little bit more fraught (laughs) and and a little bit more potentially sea-changing here for the Bronx. You can join us on the blog at BoweryBoysHistory.com where we'll be posting images that go along with today's story. You can join us as well on Facebook, on Twitter at Bowery Boys, and on Instagram where there'll be more images of the Bronx, our wanderings as we're doing more research. And on that note, we wanted to add a big hearty thank you to Lloyd Olton of the Bronx County Historical Society for giving us a marvelous tour of the Grand Concourse and other places around the Bronx and basically being this incredible ball of energy full of a million facts. And for writing so many books and articles on the subject of Bronx history. In the research that we've done over the past several weeks, like hardly an hour goes by where we're not reading some great tale written by Lloyd. Right. So check out some of his books from the library, actually. Uh, He has a lot of uh, books on Bronx history. For our Patreon supporters, we're actually going to have a full-length 
interview with Mr. Olton. Featuring many more of his first-rate puns. <laughs> <laughs> and things that we talked about that we, that we didn't get to even mention on the show, like the opening of the Lowe's Paradise Theater, oh. for instance, on the Grand Concourse. He has a beautiful description. For those of you who support us on Patreon, and thank you all so much, and we greatly appreciate it, and we can produce a show every two weeks because of you. For those of you, this wonderful interview is headed your way. For more information, go to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We also wanted to add that we will be doing a live event, a live reading outside the city. We're going all the way to Maplewood, New Jersey, half an hour by train, to the fantastic Words Bookstore to do a reading on Saturday, September 24th at 7.30 p.m. You can read more about that on their website, wordsbookstore.com. We'll come back here in two weeks where where we'll have the third and final part of our epic tale of the borough of the Bronx. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.